0: Hi, I'm Hannah and I'm Sarah and this is Big Small Talk.
1: This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place.
0: Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics.
1: And today we're going to talk about Israel and Palestine, bed bugs, the voice to parliament, the Beckham documentary and Trump.
0: But first we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respect to elders past and present.
1: But before we get into the news cycle, do you have a
0: personal headline this week? Well, we were talking about this this morning and I was saying to you, like, I've just had immaculate vibes for the past four (laughs) days. Like, I'm out of, like, all my stress period from the book. And, like, (laughs) this is unhinged. Like, I slid into someone's DMs on Instagram, a man, this last week. I blocked another man who I thought was horrific. And then I've just, like, been having, like, my house is perfectly clean. I am having the most relaxing inner Peace. I've also just come off my period. Maybe interrelated. Yes. Maybe. Maybe not. It's impossible to know. I've decided to have a crush again. I've decided to let men smile at me on the street again. It's so (laughs) crazy. What shift did you? I don't think we put this down to. I'm probably ovulating. I don't know. (laughs) I'm just like in a great era right now. I don't know what it is. This has been you all week. All like the past. I would say the past four days. I have just been like, I'm hot. I'm iconic. Everything's going well. Last night I ate an entire thing of cheese. Didn't even have one bad thought about myself. I was like, good for you, queen.
1: <laughs> See, okay, I, I wasn't sure what my personal headline was going to be, but you've triggered something oh. in me because I have had, I want to say like a similar level of productiveness, but coming from a, ter- like from a weirder place, oh. I would say, because the last few days, I think I don't know what it's been like a weird – I've had a weird energy about me. Like I've cl- deep cleaned my room and house, but like not from a like – This is fun way, but from like a I need to do something to distract my body and mind. Nice, (laughs) very productive. Is it healing a bit? It is healing a bit, I think, because then at least you're like, well, this is very clean. This room. Yes,
0: I get it. No, I know the energy you're talking about, and it's not. It's a bit manic. It's a bit manic. It's a bit manic. It's a lot, but it's exciting. It's a bit exciting, and then I was
1: like, said to two my friends last night, I was like, can we go to Yochi tonight? Mm. Like a Yochi
0: therapy session? I don't think I've ever been to Yochi.
1: Oh, go to Yochi for therapy. It's really fun. You'll see me in the corner. I'm having a very intense conversation (laughs) I love that. Um, We'll get into the news cycle, but I will preface this in saying
0: that this week has been exhausting. And I think it's really important to acknowledge how horrible the internet is, how horrible the public sphere and the public debate has been across a range of stories. So I think Mm. it's just important to say that it's a big episode. And take care. The death toll in Israel and Gaza now exceeds 1,400 following an attack by Hamas. Now, I want to start this story by saying that it's rapidly developing. Even between the time that we're recording now on Tuesday morning and Tuesday afternoon when this goes live, a lot will have changed, a lot Mm. will have evolved. So you need to pay attention to the moving parts and we're going to try and break this down as clearly and simply as possible.
1: Yeah, we're going to try and explain it. It's important to know But I also want to preface this story in saying that to truly understand what is going on in Palestine and Israel, you would have to go back to biblical times and we'll get more into it, but you could research this for a lifetime. And not
0: know everything. And still not know everything. And I think, again, we're starting this from the place of people are picking sides and making this a very divisive, polarizing debate. Mm. And actually what this is is just loss of life and violence and inhumanity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's really important to say it's complicated, we don't have all the answers, we don't know everything. No. And there's been a lot of really poor coverage of this.
1: I think a lot of people are quite scared to cover this because there's this feeling of not knowing enough or not wanting to say the wrong thing. So even publications that you would normally look to are not touching
0: this very well. No. To start with... What is the Gaza Strip? So the Gaza Strip is a 41 kilometre long and 10 kilometre wide territory that exists between Israel, Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea – 2.3 million people live there, and it makes it a location with one of the highest population densities in the world, Mm. right? The Gaza Strip is one of two main territories, along with what is the much larger West Bank, which make up the Palestinian territories, right? Mm. According to the United Nations, 80% of the population of Gaza rely on international aid.
1: Well, it's mainly refugee camps.
0: Yes, yeah, and so basically it's you know daily food being brought in to help it's it literally is like quite a, a it's poverty
1: and from what i understand with it as well like the border of it one side is the egypt border which is a heavily military operated border and then the other side is heavily military operated with yes israel so yes. it's it's quite stuck
0: yes it is the perfect description so
1: what would we say is the broader context we need to know between Israel and Palestine? The basics. yeah.
0: Like. Basically the position that we'd start in with the quicker summary I can do that gives sort of – accurate information Mm. on this, is Mm. that during World War II, Gaza was under British control. The population had an Arab majority and a Jewish minority. When the war ended, though, Jewish people were leaving Europe to find a safe place to reside. And essentially, the UN agreed to divide what had previously been known as mandatory Palestine into two states, Israel, which would be the Jewish state, Mm -hmm. and then Palestine, which would be the Arab state. The Jewish side accepted the existence of Israel, but it was rejected by the other side. This is in 1948, and basically war broke out over this. Mm -hmm. We basically then see Gaza existing in various forms under Egypt until it was captured by Israel in 1967 during what is known as the Six-Day War. Mm -hmm. Since this point, Israel has been occupying or blockading thousands of kilometres of Palestinian territory including the border, right, is what we're talking about. You were saying, which essentially means Gaza's stuck. Mm. And the UN says that this is illegal. So the other key historical point to understand here is that Israel actually withdrew from Gaza in 2005, but they maintain control of water, electricity, food supply, telecommunications, Surge. airspace. Yeah. So while it may not be sort of defined as this formal occupation that preceded it for 50 years, it, it's not 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 occupation we're going to get into hamas in a second but what's important to understand at this point is that hamas then took control of the territory of gaza in 2006 and israel had occupied palestinian territory for the 50 years preceding right so israel's military controls every aspect of daily life in occupied palestinian territories still as we just discussed and it continues to impact and control things like we said water electricity travel access to farmland whether Palestinians can travel to go to work or school or cross the border and there have been systemic human rights violations
1: yeah and that i think on the flip side of that as well though um, it is important it is and this is what's complicated with it it's really important when you're looking at that to also then consider why Israel is trying to expand territory and like why they're there in the first place you would have to go I mean I encourage people to go look at like Zionism and diaspora and the fact that they were promised this land back in World War I again in World War II like the the politics around this is so confusing so when talking about this it is really important to differentiate as well that
0: Hamas between Palestinians as well what would you how would you explain Hamas so Hamas is an Islamic militant group it has fought several wars with Israel since then I believe five mm. um, Hamas specifically its military arm is recognized as a terrorist organization by not just Israel but the United States, Australia, the European Union and the United Kingdom just to name a few. Hamas is backed and weaponized by Iran, but there's also a lot of stuff coming out about who they're funded by and things that it's a very complicated area right? that we don't quite understand yet. Mm. But it's important to also understand that Hamas does not speak for all Palestinians. So we've also got this alternate here where the larger West Bank, which is a Palestinian territory, is governed by a different party entirely and overseen by a Palestinian authority called President Abbas, his name is, um, which recognizes Israel's right to exist and is seen by most of the West, as representing Palestinians. I think the key distinction between Hamas and this alternate, the Fatah Party, is that Hamas has remained committed to using armed resistance, but the other side believes in negotiation and has kind of ruled out violence. So there is an alternate here that we can see, and there is conflict within Palestinian resistance as to what that looks like.
1: Okay, so what actually happened on Saturday?
0: Yeah, so on Saturday morning at six AM, Hamas launched a wide scale attack on Israel, which prompted the Israeli government to declare a state of war. It took place on a major Israeli holiday, which is really notable. It it, it just I think it's it's notable because it makes it just so much more horrific, I think. Yeah, and acts. wasn't that
1: holiday you're not allowed to be on your phone. Yes. So for a lot of people around the world, going back online,
0: that was a shock. Yes, absolutely. Awful. Yes. And it it followed weeks of heightened tensions on the Gaza Strip and the Israeli border, alongside ongoing heavy fighting in the West Bank, which is occupied by Israel. So thousands of members of Hamas surged by land, sea, and air into communities in the Gaza Strip. They killed civilians, soldiers, and have been taking hostages. So more than 2,600 people are injured in Israel, and Hamas has stated that they have taken more than 100 hostages back to Gaza. They've also said that they will be executing one hostage live on television for every airstrike in Gaza. It's, it's inhumane. It's abhorrent. It's, it's, it's abhorrent. Israel has cut off the supply of electricity, food, water and fuel to Gaza – now, more than 80 countries have formally declared their support for Israel in the conflict, um, including Australia. Uh, you know, Anthony Albanese posted to X saying that he recognises mm. Israel's right to defend itself, which is a really common line that we see the come out. The Opera House also was lit up. Yeah. I, uh, yes. no, And I saw there was a protest. There was there actually was a, there was a protest protest at protest in time. Sydney. Yeah. For, uh, the, the Free Palestine Movement. Free Palestine Movement. And again, you know, this is a rapidly evolving situation that we simply won't be able to keep up with. And there's obviously been really notable events. Like, there's, some, you know, there's also different claims. Like, I read this morning someone claiming that there was up to 5,000 rockets fired by Hamas and then someone else said it was 2,500. Like, yeah, the numbers, you know, there was an attack at a music festival where 260 people were allegedly killed and the in The music one.
1: festival was awful. Yeah. They were all 20-year-old to
0: 30 year olds kids. It's, yeah. It's... It's really horrific and we're even struggling to talk about it. And I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a member of the the Jewish community in Australia or anywhere. Like it would be terrifying, right? It would be terrifying. And this is what it comes back to, and I think this is what we need to be talking about and conversing about, is that there seems to be this incapacity to sit with the multiple truths at once that Mm. we can advocate for the freedom of Palestine but simultaneously not condone or celebrate in any sense, and I don't, violence, no. war, murder, assault. No. And that's what seems to be really difficult in this space is like acknowledging that multiple groups can be harmed and that these are civilians. Mm. And I think that online is a really dangerous place. The comment section is a really unhelpful place and it's people sitting behind their keyboards saying a lot of shit with no lived experience. And I don't, you know, I'm not claiming to have any, obviously. I agree, though. I think you could, you could research this
1: for years and years and years and you could 100% sympathise with both sides of this story. And because I, even in research, if I understand and sympathise with the Palestinian cause... That doesn't mean I would at all condone mass murder and violence. Yeah. And there is there should be an ability to hold space for these conversations simultaneously.
0: Yeah. And I, what I also want to say is like what seems to be a bit of a problem here, which I can totally understand, is that from people who are on the side of like the Free Palestine movement, their issue with, especially the West and the way that politicians respond to this and the way the media reports on it, is that there has been genocide committed in these Palestinian territories, and there is mass murder committed by the you know Israeli government, and no one says anything. Mm. And the West is now jumping to the side of Israel to send whether it be money, resources, or just advocate for their side, but then there's silence when murder and genocide and all these atrocities are committed towards Palestinians. Yeah. So a lot of the people are just pointing to the gap. And that's really what this comes down to is it's a complicated conversation and I think that we're not experts. No. And I think it's more just important that we hold truth, hold space, hold nuance.
1: Yeah. And check in... If you have Jewish
0: friends, this would be a truly terrifying time. And check in with the people in our lives that are affected by this story, Mm -hmm. because there are people. And you know, the comment sections are heinous and everyone wants to just pick a side and be polarised and it's just not that simple.
1: It seems the one thing at Paris Fashion Week that everyone just couldn't leave without was not a micro mini skirt, but an out of control bed bug infestation. Slay. The city of love is now the city of bed bugs. Stop. It's really
0: good content, Sarah.
1: I could keep going with it, but it's just not that funny, though, is it? It's a bit serious. It's a bit serious. (laughs) serious. (laughs) Um, This is also not an exaggeration. It's like a genuine state of crisis in the capital of France right now. Everyone is panicking over these bed bugs. And I think it's particularly scary because we've had the Rugby World Cup mm. and we've also had Paris Fashion Week during the height of this infestation. So everyone that's come from all over the world for these events are now most likely leaving with these bed
0: bugs. It's a great look. I just think it's a bit funny. Well, it's not of, funny.
1: It's not really that funny. It's actually awful. Like, so sorry. It's all <laughs> But first off, we'll go into like actually what bed bugs are and oh, why they're dangerous because I don't know if this is common, but I was actually talking about this the other day with a friend and she was like, "A bed bug's real." And I was like, "What?" Oh. And she was like, "You know, like sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite." She's like, "I thought that was like a childhood myth."
0: No, it's really a problem. It's really a problem. Wash your sheets in warm water. They are
1: bed bugs are like small insects. They're about five millimeters long. They're mostly found in like beds, mattresses, linen. They can grow up to a centimeter. They turn from brown to red when they're full from feeding. Yuck. Yep, they suck your blood. Like, you get these little bites up your arm. They're itchy, they're uncomfortable, um, but they can't transmit diseases and they can't do anything that fatal unless you're allergic to them. I actually have been bit by bedbugs before. Same. Really? Yeah, yeah, in a hotel. Really, my mm. was are not. Yeah, in a really disgusting hostel in Rome.
0: Slime. <laughs> That's a financial hack. That was a financial hack, and I paid the price. It, it's gross, but I think like the reason I was like it's a bit funny is because they don't transmit diseases, and it's like it's it is gross, and we have this especially with like our beds and our sheets. It's disgusting, but it's not like dangerous.
1: Well, no, but it is painful and itchy, and they're really hard to get rid of. Anyway, back to Paris. Paris's deputy mayor has come out and declared no one is safe and the government is having crisis talks right now because it's not just people's beds it's showing up in airports in movie theaters on trains on buses it's been found in 17 schools like genuine cases and seven schools have had to shut down because it's so out of control oh my god the other thing about like bed bugs come out at night like you're not supposed to see bed bugs we're seeing videos of like multiple bed bugs crawling across a bus seat in the middle of the day Ew. which only explains that's how many bed bugs there are
0: I didn't know it was that bad. It's
1: really bad. And like if you see footage of the streets in Paris right now, it's just piles and piles of people's mattress, because you have to chuck them out. It's like almost impossible to get it out of your mattress. <gasps> yes. Oh my god. Uh, 40 yeah. winks as sales are going off. <laughs> For a bit of context on Paris, like this city, obviously metropolitan area, no stranger to travelers. It's the world's most visited city. Uh, with 44 million tourists Whoa. in 2022. But it's also not a stranger to bedbugs. Between 2017 and 2022, more than one in 10 French households reported bedbug infestations. That's huge. That's massive. Yeah, so this isn't like brand new, this concern. But there's also been reports that this upsurge in bed bug infestation in recent years has been due to the particular rise in travel and the increasing resistance of the bed bugs to pesticides.
0: So they're they're beating their poison. So like these are super bed bugs. They're like hard
1: to kill. So in other words, these guys have mutated and they've evolved to create defences and adaptations against certain chemicals. That would typically otherwise have destroyed them before.
0: So this is actually such a bigger story than I ad- originally you. anticipated. Thank you. So like people
1: are like, going back to New York and back to LA after Fashion Week, and these bed bugs are like in their suitcases. Oh my god! And then bre- they breed at a rapid rate. This could be a super spreader of them.
0: Wow. Mm. Thank you for taking me through that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I sound like I'm being an alarmist right now, but I got way too invested in this. I just think bed bugs scary. I, I think we, I, I saw the you know the news headline and I was like. Ah. I know. This is quite scary. I, I'm with you. It's not alarmist. You're you're literally stating facts.
1: But there are a few things. If you've come back from Paris and you're listening to this, and it's probably too late. You're probably doomed. Put everything in a hot, hot wash. Mm-hmm. If you can't put it in a hot wash, you have to take it to a dry cleaner. If you have toiletries, put it in your bathtub because the bed bugs can't jump out of the tub. <laughs> Ew. These things you're saying are terrifying. <laughs> There's way more. But... I'm going to go. Oh, and... you can put it in a freezer. You can freeze them as well.
0: My sheets are fine and I'm still going to go home and wash them in hot water. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, I, I encourage I, I it. don't
0: fucking like that. <laughs> before we get into the next headline, though, we're just going to take a short little break and have a word from our sponsors. That was so fun to say. That's so legit of us. It is. <laughs> With four days until the Voice to Parliament referendum, here is the update you need before hitting the polls on Saturday. This Saturday. This Saturday. I've actually already voted. Clever. You haven't? I haven't. You want your democracy snag. I want my democracy snag. I think that's fair.
1: Now didn't even occur to me not to get my
0: democracy snag. No, and I didn't get – you know, I saw one of my friends voted in uh, New York. She's overseas at the moment and she just got a democracy Tim Tam when she went and voted at the consulate, so –
1: Oh, that's – that's nice. That not as doing good that. as a snack. No.
0: But, well, I live in the inner west in Sydney, so it's always like a halloumi, and <laughs> it's always like there's a vegan option. That's not halloumi is not vegan, but you know what I'm saying. It's like a spinach there's, option. There's alternatives. There's alternatives. Yeah, okay? yeah. The democracy snack has different meanings depending on where in the country you live. <laughs> now, I want to get into this again and say this is a really complicated issue. I think a lot of people are actually afraid to talk about it and I refuse to be because we all have to vote and we all need to be informed. Now, we've done multiple episodes where we have spoken through what we're voting on, the processes. Um, We've debunked some of the common misinformation, disinformation we're hearing from both sides. Mm. And I think that this right now is not an opportunity to rehash all of that information because I think that if you're listening, you probably and hopefully know what you're voting on on Saturday. But I think today is an Opportunity to go over what this campaign has looked like, some stats uh, before we hit the polls ahead of Saturday, and have a conversation about our feelings and our approach to this week. Mm-hmm. Going back, I think like the key arguments that we're seeing from both sides of the campaign, the Yes campaign argues that Indigenous people should have a say in matters that affect them, that we should recognise more than 65,000 years of continuous culture, and that listening and consulting Indigenous people on matters that affect them will ensure money is saved and spent more effectively to close the myriad gaps they experience, right? The No campaign can be split into two distinct sides, the Conservative No and the Progressive No. Now, the Conservative No has has been clearly focused on division, saying, you know, that um, this voice will create inequality under the law and that it's legally risky, that it will increase litigation. That's kind of been their core pieces of argument. Whereas the progressive no has argued that it's a bureaucratic process and that treaty should come first. Or and this doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough or that they don't want to be recognised in the constitution of the coloniser.
1: The other really fair point of the progressive no is... There's not enough
0: trust in government to put yourself behind something like this. Yeah, and why would you? Why would you trust a government that has failed you for its entire existence, right? Absolutely. Understandable. So that's kind of like the key distinctions we're seeing between the sides. Now, some stats that I was reading last night, the ABC's poll of the polls has put the yes at an average of 41.2%, well behind the no, which currently sits at 58.8%. 2.2 million people have already voted at a pre-poll centre and 1.9 million people have so far applied for a postal vote. Now, something interesting that I wanted to talk about as well is that I saw at the end of last week, the Guardian's essential poll saw the yes vote increase by two points and the no vote decrease by two points. And that's the Mm. first time that it happened in a couple of months. The no was like rapidly increasing and the yes wasn't really moving or it was decreasing. Yeah. But something more interesting than that that I thought about, which kind of puts into perspective what the next few days mean, is that between, so you can identify when you're being polled as like a soft yes or a soft no, meaning you are more flexible, you haven't quite decided and you could have your mind changed. So between the soft yes, the soft no, and undecided voters, was 28%, mm. which is 5 million people. Wow. So we potentially have also, like I will say, generally the people that pre-poll are not the undecided voters. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> You're not getting in early to be yeah, like d- d- <laughs> d- yeah, to be with yeah, question yeah, yeah. marks, you know. Yeah. So I think that we have this potential despite what the polls are indicating. We do have a potential swing here, but it's also interesting to note that like the last referendum, the republic referendum was actually it went down and it was tracking at 45% before the vote and it ended up at 45% and it failed. Mm. So like that's what we're looking at is like right now we're looking at failure of this referendum. Yeah. And so I guess what we're here to have a talk about is not, you know, the detail or, or the specifics of the question, but about how we should approach these conversations. Mm. I think that from my perspective, my concern is not whether people are voting yes or no. My perspective is whether people are being lost through the conservative no's misinformation and disinformation that has been spread. And the way in which they've kind of commodified fear and outrage and confusion to disengage people and to get them to withdraw from this conversation altogether.
1: Yeah, I also think it's been like slight variations on the same argument. The goalpost is just like slightly shifting every time. Absolutely. Like an example I've heard, and I'm not like demonising this because I think it's a fair, I understand why people would ask this. Why wasn't a face put to the yes campaign? Who, who's going to be the leader of this committee? Maybe if they'd done that, that would have made a difference. Interesting point. However, don't you think, like, just looking at the vitriol this has brought up in this campaign, whoever was brave enough to put their face as the leader of this, you would have found a 1,001 reasons to pick them apart.
0: But I actually think that there has been, like, a, really consistent team of campaigners from the yes side that are likely to be the people that are elected to the body. Uh, Like Thomas Mayo. Yeah, Thomas Mayo has been one of the really core advocates and he wrote the Voice to Parliament handbook with Kerry O'Brien. And one of the things I think is that really resembles quite closely the detail argument because what I hear when I hear that is like... I just need an answer to this and then I will vote yes. But what would actually happen if we were provided with that answer is that that answer would be attacked and demonised, even though we aren't voting on that. Mm. So the point of the voice, again, is not that we are committing to detail constitutionally. It's not actually a legal question we're necessarily being asked. It's kind of a moral one. It's Mm. kind of, do we support in principle the existence of a voice and the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through the establishment of that group and that advisory body, right? Mm. And so if we were to put a a face or a a detailed structure to that vote, that's what we would be offering up to Peter Dutton to shit on. And instead, what's interesting is Peter Dutton and Jacinta Price and these people that are spreading these lies are the very same people who will actually help form the voice if it was to succeed. And so for them to get up and say, like, we just need this, we just need that, we need to know who the face of this is, we need to know what the detail and structure is, we have an example and we have the principles of how it will be decided, but they are the people that would contribute to those decisions. And that's what Australians don't understand, I think, Mm. is that the people that are lying to you are the same people that have the power to make those decisions.
1: Mm. You know what else I'll say on this as well, and I don't know if this is a fair call, Mm. but I would say in criticism of the Yes campaign is that... Yes, we, like we've been saying, you can access this. You, the information is there, but the poor communication from the actual Yes campaign of where people can go find this—it blows my mind how like poorly communicated that was. Also, I feel like the Yes campaign has had strong campaigning in the eleventh hour.
0: I agree. They've come
1: through with these great ads and great messaging when it's too late.
0: I agree. I really would have liked to have seen Anthony Albanese get up and field the No better. I would have preferred, I I just think there has been weakness in his approach and I do advocate for seeing First Nations people be the faces of the Yes campaign more so, but I do think he's failed. I do and I think I agree with you. I have had What concerns me is the amount of people that are saying to me as one person that runs one account on Instagram that I have done a better job at communicating the yes campaign than the yes campaign. In a a succinct way. Yeah. And I think it's because there is all this confusion and misinformation and it's really hard to debunk. But I think that when we're talking about this with people, I'm not trying to tell them how to vote. I am trying to tell you what you are voting on. You are voting on whether you support an alteration to the constitution that recognises Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through the establishment of a voice. I agree. And if that isn't communicated properly, you start to fill in the blanks yourself and that's exactly
1: what the No Campaign has done.
0: Absolutely. And so I think that in, like, sort of concluding this... It's important that we consider the toll that this year has taken on First Nations people and it's important that we hold space for the fact that, again, I don't believe it should be our decision to make but we all have to vote. And I think that it's just more about really taking care for how you have these conversations and who you're checking in with. Mm -hmm. And if there's racism being thrown around in your family group chat or at lunch or over the phone, it is important that you say something, not that you enforce how you vote because no matter what – All that matters is that you interject on really harmful and bigoted rhetoric and that you tried your hardest to have a conversation about democratic processes and voting. But it's going to be a big week and I think it's just important that we pay attention and lean in here.
1: A new David Beckham Netflix documentary has confirmed many things, mainly that David was in fact really hot in the '90s, and that posh spice put
0: him on the mat. Slay girlfriend, he wasn't that <laughs> hot. So
1: Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, I hope everyone got that joke. It was really good. Thanks, thanks. He was really hot. Have you? I think you need to watch it. I've only watched the first episode so far. Not my type, Not but type. he's a very pretty boy. I don't know, slay he's on, yeah, pretty Yuck. boy. Ick. Um. Here are my favourite revelations from the doco so far. Some of this is what I've personally just seen in the first episode that I've watched. Um, Some I've had to read on, which has been unfortunate because I want to go on this journey on the documentary and I will resume. But lots of stuff has come out. One... David Beckham loves to beekeep and Lego. That's actually very endearing. I d- yeah, I know. It, like, starts with him, like, out in his little beekeeping outfit, like, pouring <laughs> the honey, and I'm like, what am I watching? What is happening That's right That's hilarious. Now? The filming of it's also really funny when you watch it, because, like, everyone has these, like, really, especially in the first episode, like, really intense close-ups, and mm. then it'll kind of, like, overlay footage over them. It's very dramatic. I'm like, what? I'm, <laughs> I'm overwhelmed You've by what it to I'm me. watching. The second thing I picked up was, but maybe this isn't fair for me to say, but daddy issues. From little, David. From David, I would say. Pretty much what's happening is, like, it goes through his relationship with his father and, like, his dad's obsession with his son's success. David actually says in one of the side interviews, like, it was all about control. And he says stuff like how his dad would feed him, like, raw eggs as a scrawny teen to beef him up. And, like, it was his dream for his son to play this and it was his dream for his son to do that and, like... It's interesting because it comes from, like, a place his dad is obviously just so proud because he has gone and achieved all of these things. But I also thought it was interesting. So, Stevens, who's the director, I've never watched Succession. I've only seen a few episodes. But if you've seen Succession, he plays Hugo in it. Um, And he also directed this Beckham documentary. And he tries and sort of fails to encourage his dad to, like, re-examine whether that, like, really hardcore focus on his son's success was useful or not Mm. for someone so young. Because you also forget, like, David was, like, I think he was 17 or something when he played his first big game. Like, he's a baby. Yeah. Yeah. And his dad just replies and says, like, I was hard, but it turned out to be the right
0: thing. Oh, my gosh. Really interesting. Again, it's kind of like giving very much child star that classic rhetoric of like, oh, I want what's best for you. But it's also my dream. And you're going to have these disordered eating behaviors yeah. in order to achieve that.
1: Like, I was waiting for David to turn around and be like, no, dad, I'm giving up your dream. Yes. No. <laughs> like, yeah. Third thing I noticed. Posh and him are super cute. Yeah. Like, she comes in and I was like, oh, my God, I'm so like and he would talk about how he would drive hours to see her for like seven minutes really yeah kind of gets a bit contentious everyone's like he's not focused on the game victoria's distracting him sort of thing whoa yeah yeah there's a few like okay i don't know if i was just picking this up or if other people have picked up on this and again i'm only episode one but like his mum is like yep uh victoria would call at 3 a.m and i'd be like he's got a train tomorrow And they'd talk for hours. Like, she just seemed unimpressed. Like, the same way, like, you're distracting my son. Yes, (laughs) I get it. The other thing that was interesting, and again, I don't follow soccer, football, very closely. So this was all sort of new goss to me as I was watching it. But a big thing that happened in David Beckham's career was he was sent off a game for kicking a player during the 1998 World Cup finals against Argentina. And the incident sparked huge outrage in England. And, like, newspapers declared him, like, public enemy number one. It was awful. And it's insane when before this, like, you forget how, like, insanely talented he was. He was the golden boy before this. And in the documentary, it's revealed that the night before that big game and before all this happened, Victoria, who was touring with the Spice Girls at the time, called him and told him that she was pregnant the night before this huge game.
0: So he committed like a violent act against another player after finding no, out happy news? No, no, no. He's
1: like it was I think everyone was like he it's interesting. No one like Victoria was like yeah, he was thrilled to hear the news, but like teammates of his and stuff have been like that was probably not the best time to tell him. His head was in was should have been in the game and he was clearly not focused. Not excusing it at all, but everyone was like bad timing potentially. Totally. totally I get that. Interesting, but she kind of stands by it. She's like, oh.
0: I, again, <laughs> but like, I just can't imagine being pregnant and not instantly telling my partner. Like, I know, withholding it. And I think, but I think they were like twenty-three as well. Oh wow, this is fascinating. I'm gonna go watch this tonight. Yeah,
1: You've yeah, really yeah. sold me. And like she says on it, like the absolute hate, the public bullying, it went to another level. He was depressed. He was clinically depressed. I would still want to kill those people. Huge. Whoa. The other thing the documentary touched on was the Madrid affair. So. Rebecca Luz. Have you heard of this at all? No, I've seen
0: it on TikTok the
1: last few days. She was his assistant when he was transferred to the Real Madrid team in 2003. She went on to then claim that she had an affair with him and sold her story to the British tabloid News of the World. Made a killing in doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't really directly speak about the allegations in the documentary. But Victoria does say it was the hardest period for us because it felt like the world was against us, whereas David, more vague, just said I felt physically sick every day when I opened my eyes. Interesting. It that one is interesting. Again, I don't. I'm not an expert on this. I think a few other women came f- forward and claimed that they had affairs with David as well. Again, it's not. Re- it's touched on. It's the first time they've ever spoken about it, but like not, mm. not di- super directly. My other observation on this is that Posh is hysterical. Yeah. She's a really funny. And I, I kind of knew that before, but she's really funny. And one of the biggest memes and clips that's going around right now is when she's like, I just really fancy David. like, And she goes, we're, just, we're both from a working class family. Aww. And then David like pops his head back in the door and is like, tell the truth, tell the truth. She's like, I am telling the truth. And she's like, what did your dad drop you off to school in? And she's like, it doesn't, that doesn't. He's like, be honest, what did he drop you off to school in? She's like, a Rolls Royce. Thank you. He's like, thank
0: you. Yes, it's so <laughs> She's iconic. She's posh spice. It's iconic. She's posh spice. Why deny it?
1: Oh, um, The other thing I thought was noteworthy was his social media following has skyrocketed since. Mm.
0: So go watch the docker. I'm going to
1: continue to watch it. Sorry for all the spoilers. No, it's good. It actually <laughs>
0: enticed me because I wasn't that sure about it before, but I will watch it now. Fabulous. The trial of Donald Trump and his real estate business has started in Manhattan last week, and despite facing a potential fine of at least $250 million for financial fraud, he treated it like a campaign sleigh. Oh, the Don. So... We know there's a million cases, so what is this case, right? Mm. The New York Attorney General is taking Trump to court after a three-year investigation found that he and others at the Trump Organization repeatedly used false and or misleading financial statements to broker deals and bolster the appearance of his net worth and obtain, like, favourable loans on the basis of these lies. Mm. So what's, like, quite interesting about this case that people might not understand is that the judge overseeing the trial has already found him guilty Mm. of financial fraud. So he's already been found guilty and that judgment occurred on the 26th of September, so two weeks ago. So this initial judgment was delivered and after prosecutors found fraudulent reporting for 23 Trump organization properties and assets between the decade 2011 to 2021. I'm with you. I was reading this this morning. That the financial statements made Trump's net worth appear between $850 million $2.2 $2 billion higher than reality. Imagine if I did that. <laughs> like, let's round it up. Let's round it up. I check my bank balance before I get a mocker. This man is over over (laughs) overcompensating by two (laughs) point two billies. Anyway. This trial is basically solely determining whether he has to pay and how much. Hmm. So it's not innocence or guilt here. He's, he's already guilty. He's already guilty. It's just
1: how, what's the price for it. Yeah,
0: what is the cost? So the argument from the New York AG is that the Trump organization should pay at least $250 million for essentially profiting off loans that were awarded based on these false claims. <laughs> so when he's bolstering all of these documents... It's just
1: like such... Fun
0: white collar crime. It's such fun white collar crime, and these are the people that should go to prison and don't. Now, Trump's lawyers have appealed the original judgment, like the foremost determination of guilt. Mm. Um, it's quite unlikely to affect the current proceedings, but worth noting. So now, I just want to take you through. Like that's a bit of fun, but let's look at the landscape now more broadly. For what the upcoming trial looks like and how that kind of intersects with the upcoming presidential 2024 election. So I had to start a mind map. I looked like that meme, you know, is it from like, what, what's, is it from Weathermillers or whatever, know. where he's doing the whiteboard and he looks a bit insane? No, I know. I don't know. I can't remember where it's from, but I've seen it a billion times. I was literally like, my. it's embarrassing the mind map I drew yesterday to like timeline the upcoming legal cases he's facing next year. Because how many cases is he in now? It's 91 separate charges across four criminal cases, but that's not including the civil. So... Basically, he has two upcoming civil suits starting both in January of 2024. The first mm. is writer E. Jean Carroll is seeking at least a US 10 million, which is about 15 million AU dollars, from the Don for defamation. Mm-hmm. The second suit, which is also set to go to court in January of next year, which is a couple of weeks after the defamation suit, is a federal class action with a group of anonymous investors who are accusing Donald Trump of promoting an illegal pyramid scheme on the apprentice. <laughs> Lesser known about, but fun still, right? (laughs) Now we've got the criminal cases. These begin in early March next year with the January 6th capital attack. So Donald will stand trial on federal charges relating to his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Sorry, all of that, like influencing and trying to overturn the outcome and basically make himself the winner. What's important, though, to distinguish here is this trial would begin one day before Super Tuesday. Now, Super Tuesday is basically when Republican voters in more than 12 US states determine whether they give him an opportunity to be like the primary Republican candidate. So it's quite important. Super Tuesday is a big day. Yeah. In the same month, Trump's trial in relation to hush money payments will begin. So if you don't remember this one, a New York grand jury has indicted him earlier this year for allegedly falsifying business records in connection with a hush money payment paid to porn star Stormy Daniels. Before the 2016 presidential election. So it's not about having sex with or not with Stormy Daniels. It's literally about the falsification of business records in the hush money payment. Then we get to the classified documents case, which begins in May. And the Georgia election trial, which is the state-based sort of like election fraudulent claims, hasn't been set yet. I can see why you needed a mind map. It's really messy. And, like, I'm, I know I'm just taking you through it quickly because it's a lot, and we're yeah. going to keep unpacking it as it unfolds. But my thoughts are, lol, what a fucking worm. <laughs> <That's>...
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is actually what you've written in these
0: notes. <laughs> you know what? It's funny but there's because... no
1: shock value in this anymore. There's just, like, this is classic Trump. But I actually think that's dangerous territory as well. That's that we exactly
0: all... it. Yeah, because it's like, oh, he's done it again. <laughs> but that's, that's exactly my problem is that I'm laughing while I'm reading this whole list of criminal and civil suits right I know but But, he's
1: so ridiculous and everything he says and everything that happens you're like he's a comedian
0: yeah and so none of it matters suddenly it goes from like 100 back to zero really quickly whereas when Hillary Clinton sent emails
1: it ruined her yeah
0: and it's so interesting just to look at the contrast and lol what a fucking worm is my take but I think beneath that it's like we actually really need to pay attention to this and keep in mind how absurd it is because I think that as soon as we become desensitized, mm. we allow him to thrive.
1: Yeah, and I think absurdity is humor in itself. Exactly. And that's where it gets like murky, but yeah. Yeah. like satire is dead. <laughs> it, like truly, that's how I feel. Okay, we're at the QA section yet again. Thank you to everybody who sent stuff in. Thank you for the QA last week. There was, we didn't get through all the questions, but. Thank you. That was great response. It was really from good. It was really fun. But we did obviously have a lot on the voice campaign come through, and one we thought we would save. I think we touched on it a little bit in the Q and A, but we wanted to go through it more properly now. Was the question why is it legal to lie during the voice campaign?
0: The simple answer to this one is that there are no federal laws which make lying in political ads unlawful. So we have those laws for businesses. Mm. So businesses like cannot be misleading or false in their statements. Um, and and in the ACT in South Australia, there are actually laws which prevent state election campaigns from lying. Mm-hmm. So we know that it's possible to have this legislation. But the simple answer is that in relation to our federal laws, there is no prevention of lying in political ads. What there is legislation against at a federal level is misleading voters on how to complete ballot papers. Mm. So, and we can actually see that a lot of the time there is sort of, I've seen in previous elections information which toes that line because often how-to-votes can be misconstrued in campaign signage to try and convince someone that it's a how-to-vote card or something when it's not Mm. and it looks like official AEC documentation, the Electoral Commission's documentation. Mm. Um, But, yeah, the simple answer is there's just no legislation that makes it unlawful. So that's why, like, the AEC couldn't fact-check the yes and no pamphlets when they went out to every Australian.
1: That is still one of the biggest, like, blow-my-mind moments Mm -hmm. in this whole campaign is the fact that they're Official yes and no
0: pamphlets. The campaign core wasn't fact-checked. No, it's ridiculous. And also, like, what really gets to me about this is that this legislation would be quite easy to introduce because we have the precedent for it. So I think it's a massive problem in Australia and I think that what we're seeing with this referendum is, like, quite, quite like a Trumpian-style rhetoric with the way that a lot of people are, like, spreading information online. And so, like, I would... We can't go back in time and see what this would have been like if there were those laws, but I think we would have seen a different conversation potentially and that's what makes me sad. Really interesting. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for listening again this week. If you wanted to follow us on Instagram, it's Talk underscore pod. Please send us through any questions, any feedback, anything. We know this was a really big news week. So absolutely any thoughts and feelings, please send them our way. And we will talk to you next week. See you next Tuesday.